just started. That camera moved. Your okay, microphone didn't move. Microphone. Oh, that's my fault. I gotta move that right now. Um, we gotta go to Bible study. All right, good. All right, that was my fault. Sorry, guys. Okay, you're on. You're in. Okay, Semek. Which is thorn. Also, grab, hate, protect. I hate double-minded men, but I love your law. You are my refuge and my shield. Put my hope in your word. Away from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commands of my God. Sustain me according to your promise, and I will live. Do not let my hopes be dashed. Hold me, and I will be delivered. I will always have regard for your decrees. You reject all who stray from your decrees, for their deceitfulness is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your statutes. My flesh trembles. In fear of you, I stand in awe of your laws. Good stuff. Standing in awe of his laws. Now we're on Ayin next week, is that right? Yes. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Uh, this level is way lower than... Oh, yeah, I, I know. Sergio, I don't know if you can hear me, but you're you're really got a high one. Um, okay, I don't know if he can hear. Maybe he's just sending me a message. But we got a couple prayer requests. Let's see here. Uh, oh, a couple maybe last week or the week before. Uh, that lady that was bleeding and went into the hospital. She's in the ICU and then she's out and she's better. Um, I got a report today. All good, but uh, they have more tests and um, uh, so we just want to keep Irina in prayer about that. And then Mark and Becky are still struggling with the virus in Colorado. And then Mark hurt his back. He's in pain there. So, uh, but he is also growing his beard out again. And he's, I think he's probably through the itchy part. So good for him, at least on that. Um, and then um, Rhoda is not feeling so hot over in Israel. So we want to keep her in prayer. And uh, Sergio just got done with about 10 days of just feeling really, really bad. And uh, so she was able to get him through that. Now it looks like she probably got whatever he had. And so he lost 14 pounds, he said. that's That was, you know. Which is back to uh, Yeah, I bet you. Goodness gracious. Um, so we, the what? Oh, Jay, that's right. Jay, um, here at the church. I talked to him. It. He was fine uh, when I talked to him a couple hours ago. Uh, he went in um, to the hospital for uh, two bad stents. And so he, he was not feeling well at all. He had two bad stents replaced. Um, at the time, he had AFib, I think is what he had, plus his lungs were filling with fluid. And so they figured out that's what it was. They got the stents replaced. And I talked to him this afternoon, and he was sounding much, much better. All was good, but we just want to keep him in prayer. And He'll be out tomorrow. Uh, yeah, hopefully he'll be out tomorrow. That's that's what he said to me as well, but you never know with them. And everyone and, knows um, him. Say who he is. Oh, he's the one that always says, part one, part two. If you hear his voice in the background, oh, that's Jay. And um, yeah. uh, then my boss, I might as well mention that too. My boss at 7-Eleven is uh, in the hospital. She went at the same time as Jay. They probably were sitting in the ER together. She had very high potassium and then the, they got that down. Then the, I guess, sodium or something went way high. So she's she's all over the place. So we want to pray for these people. Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father, we certainly lift up those that are having trials. And we want to thank you for the people that are feeling better. We thank you for your healing hand on them and hand of protection. 
And Lord, we just ask that you would be with those that we mentioned that are sick or that are still in the hospital and that you would help them through those things. And we leave these things in your capable hands, knowing that you have a plan for each and every one of us, but it's our petition for them to be restored to health and to be happy and content in their homes rather than a hospital or uh, even at home with a bad flu or whatever it is. So we pray for them, Lord. And we also ask that this uh, study would be one that is a blessing to people and that uh, that things would be taught properly and without any uh, uh, error. But if there is error, that you would alert us to it so that we would not have something that is incorrect being put out for people to uh, have a misapplication of a biblical principle. So we pray this, that you'll be exalted through the study, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me see. Today is, I don't even know what day it is. It's uh, 30th. 30th. It's the last day of September. That means that tomorrow it's going to start getting cool, right? Yeah. Everybody's quiet. Okay, let's see here. September 30th. Probably not going to get cool, but October is often the month, not always, but it's often the month that we get our first cold front. And if so, then it'll be down into the 70s and we'll all have fires going in our house and long johns and extra jackets when we go outside. Okay, September 30th, why do Roman Catholic Bibles have more books in them than Protestant Bibles? The answer comes from the work of a man who died on September 30th, 420. His name was Sophronius Isubius Hieronomius, and I know I pronounced all of those wrong, but history knows him as Jerome. Mushi Mushi, Dariwa Nandeska. Oh. Oh, it's my wife. She says she's my wife, so you're allowed to come in. Okay, let's see here. Jerome is his name, born of Christian parents in northern Italy. He went to Rome at the age of, I think I said, what are you, not who are you. Sorry about that. I'm My Japanese, <laughs> I, I haven't spoken Japanese in a long time. I mean, I, I live there and, and I can speak it pretty well, but and I understand everything I hear. I just don't speak it well anymore. Uh, let's see here. Italy went to Rome at the age of 12 to study. He was baptized there at the age of 19 and resolved to devote himself single-mindedly to the service of the Lord. Jerome became attracted to monasticism, spending time in both Gaul, which is modern-day France, and Syria. He lived a life of self-denial in the desert near the ancient towns of Chalcis, Syria. During this time, he began mastering Hebrew and perfecting his Greek. He was ordained in Antioch and recognized as a bishop without pastoral responsibilities. He next studied in Constantinople under Gregory of Nazianus, one of the Cappadocian fathers who had a profound influence on Christian theology in general and on the doctrine of the Trinity in particular. In 386, Jerome moved to Bethlehem and spent the rest of his life there. He was the overseer of a monastery and the spiritual advisor to a local convent. Jerome spent most of his time writing. His linguistic ability and scholarship were unsurpassed in the early church. He carried on a voluminous correspondence, compiled a bibliography of Christian authors, and wrote a commentary on virtually every book of the Bible. But Jerome's greatest contribution to the Christian world was his translation of the Bible. In 382, Pope, D- Pope Damasus commissioned Jerome, then no more than 35 years of age, to produce a uniform text of the Latin Bible. He was to standardize the texts then in circulation. 
This was a daunting task, for according to Jerome, there were almost as many Latin texts as there were manuscripts. Jerome first translated the Gospels and then the rest of the New Testament, although others may have had a hand in the translation of Acts to Revelation. Jerome next turned to the Psalms, producing three successive translations. The second was based on the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament called the Septuagint. This translation of the Psalms became the standard Latin version from Jerome's day until the present. Between 390 and 404, Jerome translated the rest of the Old Testament into Latin. In addition to the 39 books of the Hebrew Old Testament, <laughs> excuse me, Jerome also translated 14 Jewish religious books that the translators of the Septuagint had also included. These 14 books were never a part of the Jewish Bible and were called the Apocrypha, which came to mean spurious or not genuine. Even though Jerome included the Apocrypha with the Old Testament as the Septuagint had done, in speaking of the 39 books of the Old Testament, he wrote, Anything outside of these must be placed within the Apocrypha, the non-canonical books. In other words, Jerome saw a definite distinction between the 39 inspired books of the, and the Apocrypha. Jerome's translation became known as the Vulgate. At the time of the Reformation, the Pope called the Council of Trent to attempt to stem the tide of Protestantism. There, in an attempt to differentiate the Roman Catholic Church from the Reformers, the Council declared the Latin Vulgate, including the Apocrypha, to be the authoritative Bible in matters of doctrine, while the Reformers recognized only the New Testament and the original 39 books of the Old Testament. Whereas Jerome had included the Apocrypha in the Vulgate as uninspired books, the Council of Trent declared them to be inspired because they can get all kinds of stuff out of them that are that is not biblical, like um, what do you call it? indulgences, purgatory. You can get those out of the Apocrypha. And so they inserted them and said that these were canon, and they violated Jerome's admonition that they should never be in the Bible as inspired. Anyway, it says, and so the difference between the Roman Catholic and the Protestant Bible was born. And it's also the Council of Trent is also where they include quite a few canons, about six or seven of them, which are absolutely heretical. They would call Paul a heretic, and one of their canons would actually call Jesus a heretic. So the Catholic Church, in my opinion, stopped being a Christian church at the Council of Trent. They were kind of hobbling along throughout the uh, years, and they really departed from the faith at that it time. Was in 1456, I think it was. This guy was in the 400s. Oh, that was in the 400s, yeah. And they still had the, oh, absolutely. the but nonsense he said, going on. Well, he, no, he just, included them just, he just included them as historical books, and he made that distinction very clear. Um, let me finish this, and then we'll go on. Um, and so the difference, oh, I read that reflection. What difference does it make which books are in the Bible? How important is it that our Old Testament is the same as that of the Jews? When Jesus and the New Testament writers spoke of the Old Testament as authoritative, why is it important to know which books they were referring to? Good questions. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It straightens us out and teaches us to do what is right. Now, people love to dismiss the Latin Vulgate because it's the Catholic Bible. But they shouldn't do that. And the reason why is because 
Jerome, when he translated the Hebrew Old Testament, he translated it from the Hebrew and also from the Greek Septuagint, which we still have. But the Hebrew, the surviving manuscripts at the time, up until just recently, the oldest of them was the Masoretic text, which dates to, I think, 1030 AD. And so you've got almost a thousand year span between the Latin Vulgate and the Masoretic text, which the Masoretic text has obvious changes by the Masoretes to hide Jesus. One of them's in the 22nd Psalm, one of them is in the uh, uh, Isaiah 53. There's uh, something that they changed about uh, Joseph in the book of Genesis and some other things, I'm sure. But uh, by going to the Latin Vulgate, by going to the Greek Septuagint, by going to the Samaritan Pentateuch and some other early sources, you can compare with the Masoretic Bible, the Masoretic text, and you can say, we know that that is wrong. All of these agree, that doesn't agree. And the Latin Vulgate, having come out of earlier Hebrew texts, shows that what he translated was from the original. Okay, Now, that did change after uh, 1948, because they found... The, um, That's uh, right, Dead the Dead Sea Strolls. And once they found that, they can have another source, which is actually much older, and they can compare that as well. So um, it, these, it, the Bible has always been protected for people that want to check what God is doing and how he has maintained a reliable Bible. And the way you do that is by original source texts, okay? And when you read a Bible, I've said this at least 7,422,907 times. I'll say it one more. When you read a Bible, you should always look at the footnotes. When there's a little one or some Bibles have an A and you look down at the bottom and it'll say the Septuagint says this or the Masoretic text says that, read those. That will help you to understand why there's a difference in the translation and what these different texts said. I don't care if you read one commentary from a, you know, a life application Bible. They're always terrible commentaries. You've got a page which one verse on that page might have, uh, uh, you know, enough substance in it to write an entire sermon on, and you'll get maybe nothing on that one verse, and you might get a half a paragraph of nonsense on that whole page of Bible. Don't read those Bible commentaries. Read more studious Bible commentaries, but always read the footnotes if your Bible is footnoted. Some of them don't, but if you have a Bible that has footnotes, stop and read the footnotes, because it'll say what we just read about. Jerome, it'll say the Latin Vulgate translation says, the Hebrew, you know, various Hebrew manuscripts say, the Masoretic text says, the Samaritan Pentateuch says, the Greek Septuagint says, and by looking at all of those, you will know which one, can we help you, ma'am? No. Oh, okay, well, you can go, that, that's my mom, so there you go. Um, okay, so that's just a little bit of what to do with translations, is to try to look at those things and to understand what's going on in source text. And you will understand by doing that just how reliable what we have is. Even if this translation chose this, at least we know that those four original texts say this and the one that they chose doesn't. And so you can reconcile that yourself. The Lord will reward you for searching out his word and how he has protected it. That's the point I'm giving you. Bert. When God speaks, it's on YouTube. Okay. Hour and 30 minutes. Oh, yes. And your guy, Geisler. Norman Geisler. He's in there, Crow's in there, lots of names that you would recognize. Uh, uh, Lutzer in Chicago. Oh, yes. I mean, there's... there's. It's called When, when God Speaks, when and it's God on YouTube. Speaks, and, and you, 
you should look at it on your computer, not your phone. Yeah, because an hour and a half, and it's probably yeah. got all kinds of stuff that you yeah. want to read. Exactly what okay. you're saying there. It goes, and it's really good. Good, it's good. It's really good. All right. When God Speaks, Burke recommends that on YouTube. Okay, I'm going to read one more thing. I'll try to remember to read this on Saturday as well, or Sunday as well. Um, this is just, I've been trying to promote people read the book of Acts. And somebody sent me an email and gave me permission to read this. So I will read it before we get into our Ephesian study from the book of Acts. I want to thank you for your daily Bible study in Acts and for your challenge. I saw one of your short YouTube videos where you challenged viewers every day to set aside a small amount of time to read and follow your daily verse-by-verse study in Acts. To be honest, I wasn't too keen to just read one verse a day, verse-by-verse with a little surface-level, happy-go-feely paragraph added, in which I'd learn almost nothing from. Unfortunately, that's been my experience with other verse-a-day writings and devotionals. We read five of them at Doris's house every week, and it's just something that makes you feel good. However, I decided to take you up on your challenge, that if I followed your daily study of Acts, and I know it's only just started, then many doctrinal errors would be made clear and corrected, and that would I would not be disappointed. Even though your daily study is only up to Acts 1-3, which I think today is 1-5, might be 1-4, I, I can't remember what I posted, but she said, the amount of information and the way that information has been presented is very easy to understand and follow, provides a deeper and more cohesive understanding of the word, and is very thorough, engaging, and thought-provoking. So I, I'm, I'm thankful she said these things. It's making me a little embarrassed, but... Thank you for your work. Uh, I'll skip that. Let's see here. Um, one five uh, today. One five today. Okay. And then jo- join in the study with the book of Acts. She says it again. I'm looking forward to more and all the future tomorrow verses. Okay. And then her name is Maria and she's in Cambridge, Maryland. And I want to thank her for that because I, I don't like to promote myself, but the book of Acts is important enough where you should probably follow along and it's in-depth enough where you'll get everything you need out of the verse, and I also throw in some, you know, some life application stuff to help you along with that, but there you go. Please follow that. You're only eight days behind now if you start right now, because we have three introductory verses, and then Acts 1, uh, 1 through 1, 5, so it's not going to take you any time to get caught up. Well, yeah, three introductory Yeah, yeah, one of them, I think, was seven pages or something, but you, you got to put that stuff in there, because when you do a line-by-line commentary, you can't stop and say, okay, look at this pattern. You know what I mean? So I had to throw some of the patterns in there at the beginning. And by doing that, it will help people to process what is going on as they go through okay. the book of Acts. And when you but, reference it, it'll make sense. Yeah, when you reference it, it'll make sense. That's exactly right. Okay, so we are in the book of Ephesians. Maybe we'll finish today. I don't know, but we're in <laughs> Ephesians 5.10. Here we go. So I will back up to 5, 8, which five, is the beginning eight. of a paragraph. All right. 8, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. 9, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Today's verse, 10. And find out what pleases the Lord. Okay, this one says finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, which is kind of a big difference if you think about it. But... Um, let's see here, verse 510. This finding out what we are to do is connected to the word walk of the previous verse. Taken together, it says, walk as children of light. For the, And then the parenthetical thing we talked about last week, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, 
finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Okay, so there you go with that. And as we walk in the light, we are to find out that which is acceptable to the Lord, Paul's words. This is very similar to the statement which Paul uses in Romans chapter 12. He says there in Romans uh, 12, verse 2. I'm going to read you one just so we have the context. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will God. The same word is used there and in this verse. It comes from the idea of testing metals. When a person wants to find out the purity of gold, they will take a sample of it and test it. The process of such testing is to determine if there are impurities, and if so, the gold could be refined in order to further purify it. Okay, now, before I go on with that, uh, let me make a comment here. And um, when you buy gold from the U.S. Mint, it is normally at what purity? Anybody know? 99. Yeah, that's right, 99999, because they don't want to claim that it is perfectly pure gold, okay? It's almost impossible to get at every single impurity. But the idea is that the more you process it, the more that you heat it, and then get the slag, keep pulling it off the top, anything that isn't a part of the original metal, then it will become pure and pure and pure. And that's what Paul is talking about. They're refining something to find out what is acceptable to the Lord, okay? But you're right, about 99.999 is what they, something like that. Anyway, the process of such, such testing is to determine if there are impurities, and if so, the gold can be refined in order to further purify it. Uh, if you go to the Psalms, it says, your word is like silver purified seven times. That's right. Okay, so the reason why they do that is because what is, what is one of the qualities of really pure silver? See. You can see just like a mirror. As a matter of fact, if you watch on um, how it's made. That used to be on TV. Okay, you used to, every week you'd wait, and after news at uh, 7.30, there'd be how it's made for still 30 on. minutes. Yeah, it's still on. Well, it's on YouTube, and they got them all loaded up. Go to how it's made and how they make mirrors. It's wonderful to watch anyway, because you want to learn how to, they make mirrors. It is a insane process. They can make these sheets, and they can they can be 15 feet long, and they don't break, but they, they, they it's just amazing watching them do it. But all mirrors that we buy, even the cheap ones you get at the store, are backed with a coating of silver. They spray it on, okay? And so when you see yourself, all you're actually doing is looking at silver through glass. That It's that pure, okay? So when it says in the Bible, your word is uh, uh, like refined like silver, purified seven times, it means that it's pure. It's, it's just glorious, and it's something that should reflect back to you when you're reading it you should be seeing yourself in it you, oh I, I did that i shouldn't be doing that you know i feel convicted about that so the idea of silver is you know uh, it's also redemption okay silver in the bible is a picture of redemption but for the idea of the purification of it um the, the uh, kind of cliche thing that pastors say during sermons but it's a truism is that you want to be refined like silver so that when the lord looks at you he only sees himself. That's the idea there. Not that the Lord is looking at himself, but he wants to see only purity come 
out of you. And that purity is you reflecting him. So good morning. How are you? Okay, so we have, um, let's see here. Um, uh, this is true to be with us as well. By finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, we can then apply it to our walk. In doing so, we are being purified. This transforming process is compared to the standard measure which we have available to us, which is the Word of God. This is what we what this is what is to be used for the refining of our walk in this life. And it is what will be open for our judgment when we stand before the Lord. The words, what is acceptable to the Lord, are to be our goal. They are the standard of our testing. This does not come to us by an inner voice or some type of external injection of the Holy Spirit. Rather, it comes from reading and applying the Word of God to our lives. It's not going to happen any other way. As we learn and comply, we become more and more acceptable to Him. I've said it at least 10,000 times. I'll probably say it again in this sermon. I, I try to say it as often as I can to remind people that you cannot know God other than general revelation, deducing things about the created order, then I can tell what God is like. God made puppies. God is a good God. Okay, things like that. But you cannot know God personally, what he is like, who he is, how he responds to human sin, and all that kind of stuff without knowing Jesus Christ. You can't know it. And without the Bible, you cannot know Jesus Christ. It is impossible. You cannot make the the mental deduction that there is somebody out there that's perfect that can reveal to me God without the source that tells of him. And that source is the Word of God. Jesus Christ reveals the unseen Father to us. And the Word of God is what tells us about Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us what God is doing in the world through Christ. And that's why everything in the Bible ultimately points to him in one way or another, or our relationship with him, or our responsibilities to him, etc. You can't, it is impossible, and people that think that they can are deluded. This is why these churches that people go to, that, you know, I grew up in one, and, you know, I grew up in the Episcopal Church, which, you know, a billion years ago might have been a good church, right? It was one of the founding churches of our nation, okay? Nowadays, this book is dismissed by them. It is marginalized by them. They don't teach from it except little sections that they want to pick out, and they say, well, what Paul says there doesn't really matter. It's not good. It's not correct. It's contradictory. Nothing is contradictory in the Word of God. They are abusing the Word of God, and they will be punished for it if they're saved at all, and if they're not, they're going to be chucked into the lake of fire for their actions against the Word of God. This is our ability to understand who God is as long as we're alive today. You're not going to get it like I said, by an injection of the Holy Spirit, you're only going to get it through your study, your study of this word. And I say that because your pastor may be wrong. If you're listening right now, then obviously you're listening to me, and I could be wrong. I don't want to be wrong, and I wouldn't intentionally be wrong. But you need to know this word so that if I say something that doesn't sound right, you have enough of an understanding of the word to say, that just doesn't sound right, okay? You're not going to get it any other way. It is your responsibility to know this word, to read it, to cherish it, and to love it. Please do that. Please read this word. I can't say it enough. I could say this every single week and twice on Sunday, and it's not enough because we find other things that draw us away from the word of God. So please study the word of God. Okay, we've got a life application. 
A closer walk with the Lord must come about by adherence to God's word. Without it, here it is, we become the arbiters of what is and what is not acceptable. Stay close to the word. Know the word and live out the word. Allow the Holy Spirit to fill you through obedient conformity to God's word. That is all that matters in your walk with the Lord is that you are trying to conform yourself to him and to his holiness and to his glory. And, you know, people can say, oh, you're not a good Christian because, listen, I go to church, I read the word because I know that. I know that already. And the word is what I want to emulate. I may not be doing it, but I'm going to do my very best to at least try. You know, you can make up every excuse in the world that I'm not a good Christian. You're not even reading the word. You don't even know how to apply its precepts to your life. And you're telling me that I'm not a good Christian. Don't let people do that to you. Do not let people do that to you. Okay? 511. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Have no, uh, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Okay, so very close. All right, let's see here. 5.11. In verse 9, the fruit of the Spirit was mentioned. This was explained as all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Further, it was implied that this is what is acceptable to the Lord. That's in verse 10. Now, in contrast to that, we are instructed on the unfruitful works of of darkness. Before I go on, how can you know what they are unless you know the Word of God? That, exactly. How can you know what the unfruitful works of darkness are? You can know inside of you what is morally right and wrong. We are given that gauge, okay? Very few people on this earth are, what's the word when you have no empathy, no understanding of, of uh, pain? Uh, there's uh, Oh, a, yes. Um, well, sociopaths too, but there, there's a special word for a person that cannot empathize with anybody that's grieving, that it, it, they just have no, okay. Democrat? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, anyway, um, I, uh, uh, yeah, we are given a moral compass. We are given the ability to tell things are right and wrong, but that is not what we're speaking about here because we have that in every culture on the planet. And once again, if you use the, that as your gauge, then you become the arbiter of what is good. And because all of us have a faulty moral compass. Sure. We may have a moral compass, but we have a faulty one. So if we use ourselves as a gauge, like say Kim Jong-un over in Korea right now, then he has become the standard of righteousness for the Korean people. And that's a terrible place to be. Or you can say society determines that. And so everybody casts votes and uh, then that becomes the right moral compass. That's where America is now. It used to be that America was a society that was based on the Word of God, and the moral compass came from people that pursued the Word of God. And so they would make their decisions based on that. And obviously, there's been a political party that uh, was closer in line with that at one time, or during the, the uh, Civil War, one side was probably closer to the Lord than the other. But Abraham Lincoln got this right when he said, we are both in this struggle, both sides of the... the uh, you know, the Civil War, and he said, we're both appealing to the same God based on our decision of what we think is right. And so it shows you how messed up our morals are that you have an entire half of a country that's fighting another entire half of a country because they think they're right in a moral issue, okay? We cannot use our personal morals, and we cannot use governmental morals to make these decisions rightly. 
Like I said, that's where we are in this nation now, is that we have completely departed from the Word of God. It is no longer the standard. And now, people in the military that are saying this is the standard are actually being persecuted. Who would have thought that even a few years ago when I was standing as a, you know, a tech sergeant in the U.S. Air Force, that somebody would even contemplate that? They may not have been Christians, but they said, you know, he has a right to that. And we know that this is what is, is the foundation of our, even if I don't believe it, that is the foundation. Now they're actually being actively persecuted for their faith in Christ in the U.S. military. So um, we are not the arbiters. We need to find out what the unfruitful works of darkness are. And Paul says, with such things, we are to have no fellowship. This means that we are not only to not participate in them, but we are not to be adjoined to those who do participate in them while they are so engaged. Once again, I say this to people all the time. They'll send me an email and they'll ask a question about, you know, hanging out with somebody that's uh, a sinner in the church. And I say, you're supposed to be kicked out of the church. And I'm not talking about a general sinner that, you know, we're all sinners. I'm talking about somebody that's involved in a definite sin against the Lord. And we know that the church is to say you are to be removed. Okay. But um, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that if, you know, you want to hang out with the, the people of the world, go ahead. You have every right to, and you'd have to take yourself out of the world otherwise. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm, you can associate with the people of the world. But my comment here is, I'll read it again so you understand. Um, this means that we are not only to not participate in them, but we are not to be adjoined to those who do participate in them while they are so enjoined. I can hang around with my friend that smokes pot all day long, but while he's smoking pot, I should not be around him because then I am condoning his actions. I say, you know, I got to leave now. That's not something that I want to participate in, okay? Or, you know, whatever. Whatever the moral issue is that is not something that the Bible would look happily on, you need to say, okay, it's time for me to go. You're my friend. I'll be back tomorrow when you're not doing this, but I need to go right now. Okay. As a matter of fact, I'm going to stop just so I, I don't want anybody to think and, and half of you are going to forget what chapter I said. And, and uh, so I want to just read it to you. It's very short. It's very quick. It's, uh, it, it, it's a two minute read. So we're going to read the whole chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, so that you can see what's on Paul's mind. It is actually reported that there is sexually Im sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality, excuse me, immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. Bad thing. This is a bad thing he's saying. We need to correct this, okay? And this is a person in the church. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done the, this deed might be taken away from among you? For in, I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He's saying, get this guy out of the congregation, let him go live in the world with Satan, and he will be destroyed, but his spirit will be saved. But get him out from among you, because there's going to be a cancer among you. Going on, your glory is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. You are pure in the Lord's eyes. You are deemed as unleavened, sinless. So act like it is what he's saying there, okay? That's what he's telling you. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us, meaning he died for our sins. He was our substitution. 
Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, meaning living in the world, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Act like a congregation of the saints. Okay, so he goes on. Here it is. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with the sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world. This is what he's saying here. Know what the deeds of darkness are. These people are in darkness, and they're doing deeds of darkness, but I'm not telling you not to hang around with them, but I'm saying here that even though Paul says that, we're not to hang around with them while they are engaged. You can hang out with them all day long, knowing that they're doing these things, but when they're doing them, remove yourself. Not for your sake, but for their sake, so that they know that you don't approve of this. And for your sake as well, because you don't want to get pulled into that kind of thing. But he goes on, but I have now written you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. And you're the standard. You're, you're the one that's saying, I need to remove myself from here so they know that you're a Christian and you believe that God is going to judge them. That ought to wake them up. It may not, but it ought to. You've told them about Jesus, but the whole point is that you don't have to cut yourself off from these people. Just don't get into their deeds of darkness. Therefore, put away from yourself the evil person, meaning the believer who is doing these things. Okay? So, that's why I qualify this and I say just don't do it while they are so engaged. By being around people who are carousing and conducting their lives in unholiness, we will become infected by that state as well. This is what fellowship implies, okay? So suppose I have, um, I don't know, my best friend. I went to high school with him, and he's not saved, and he goes out and does all of these things. He's still my best friend. I've loved him since I was in first grade or something, right? We've been good friends. He knows that I don't do these things, and I'm going to remove myself from him while he's doing these things. That's the only right thing to do. He knows that I'm a Christian. I'm not going to participate in it. I hope he'll get convicted over it. Someday he'll, you know, have something happen in his life and he'll need to hear again about Jesus. And he'll say, tell me. And that's when I can move in. If he's not my friend anymore because he's a carouser, how, how am I ever going to tell him about Jesus again? How am I going to be an example to him? So have the proper dividing line in your life towards people of the world. Enjoy their fellowship, enjoy their company, but stay away from them while they are doing the things of the world, if they are contrary to the word of God. That's what I recommend. Rather than having such fellowship, we're to expose them. The word from which expose is translated gives the idea of confronting, admonishing, convincing, rebuking, and the like. So what did I just say? He's doing this thing? Time to get away from him. You're convicting him. You're admonishing him by your actions. That's how you expose him. Man, I, I just, I love you, man, but I can't be around you while you're doing this. This is the 22nd time I've had to tell you that, and I'll tell you that every time you do it again. You're convicting him. You're exposing what he is doing, but you're not turning him away, okay? Whereas somebody in the church that's doing it, time for them to leave, okay? Have reason in your dealings with other people, both believers and non-believers. Okay, and a person may not actually be a believer, but if he's in the church saying he is, then you need to treat him like a believer and say, time for you to leave. Okay, you're not the one that's judging whether they're saved or not, but you can make 
determinations based on their actions. Okay, so we are to act in such a manner that is a complete contrast so that a complete contrast is set up between our fruit of the Spirit, Paul's words, and their unfruitful works of darkness. Again, Paul's words. In so doing, we will hopefully convict them of their sin and have them turn from such things. If we fellowship with them while they are so engaged, that will never come about. We are to stand apart and demonstrate those attributes which are acceptable to the Lord. Now, I know I've been in churches. I was in one just down the road here for quite a few years. They will tell you don't hang around with people like that at all. You don't want to be friends with them. You don't want to associate with them. Very legalistic attitude towards the lost. They'll knock on your door and they'll tell you about Jesus and then they'll walk away and think they've done their job. Okay? But that is not what I believe in any way, shape, or form the Bible teaches. Jesus didn't do it with the sinners in Israel. Paul did the same thing. Otherwise, we wouldn't have any church at all if Paul didn't go out and evangelize the lost, right? So it's contrary to say, I am now in this position and I cannot hang around with these people. That's completely contrary to what the Bible is telling us. If we fellowship with them while they are so engaged, that will never come about. We are to stand apart and demonstrate those attributes which are acceptable to the Lord. And we're to let them know that we feel this way. That is what will convict somebody, hopefully, or it may they may just get tired of you and say, I don't want to hang around with you because you're too self-righteous for me, when in fact, you're the one that's hanging around with them, okay? Now, the self-righteous one is the one that says, I'm not going to be your friend anymore, and just walks away, and that's it, okay? But if you're trying your best to be their friend and to just get away from them while they are doing these things, hopefully you'll convict them. That's that's the point there. Paul speaks of such things in Romans chapter 6. Let me take you back there. Romans 15. Romans, oops, way too far, Charlie. All right, Romans 7. One more page. Romans 6. And then we go down to verse 20. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those, what is it, four verses right there? Once again, if you just think them through, even on a basic level, you can come to no other conclusion than salvation is eternal. What did he just say there? He said, but now, having been set free from sin, how can you be set free from sin if you're being imputed sin every time you do something wrong? How can you be? You can't be. But Paul says, as I cite every single week, because it's an important verse to remember, 2 Corinthians 5.19. You are not being imputed, you know, the NIV or maybe the ESV. One of them says God is not counting men's sins against them. Very easy to understand. NIV, I'm sorry, the New King James Version says, God is not imputing you your sins. That just means that you're not being, it's not being forced on you. In other words, God is not counting your sins against you. So, verse, uh, what is it, once again, verse um, uh, 22. But now having been set free from sin. If you're set free from sin, you cannot be imputed sin any longer. And what does he say? The gift of God 
is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're not being imputed sins, and if what God has given you is a gift, and if God takes that back, then it was not a gift. gift. A gift is something you give, and it's given. It is done. So if you can have your salvation taken away from you by the one that gave it to you, it was never a gift. I'm sorry for people that believe that. I'm sorry for people that write commentaries, lengthy pages of commentaries to tell you that you can lose your salvation. And Paul did not mean what he said. But hey, they're wrong. And you're wasting your time reading those commentaries. John 3.16 is another perfect example of that. Whoever believes in him shall not perish unless they sin again. No, it doesn't say that. But have everlasting life. That is it. That that is the gift of God. God is gracious enough and merciful enough to the people of this world to no longer impute them their sins when their sins have been atoned for by his own son. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Okay, Romans 6, 20 through 23. What is important to understand here is that by being admonished to not fellowship with such unfruitful works, we can in fact, fellowship with them. Think it through. If we're not to fellowship with those works, that means we can fellowship with those people exactly as 1 Corinthians 5 says. We are given the choice as to how we will conduct our walk. It is unfortunate that so many blood-bought believers in Christ choose to spend their time not in pursuing what is pleasing to the Lord, but engaging in exactly what they are asked to refrain from exactly what they were asked to refrain from. And mostly that comes from ignorance. A lot of it is just stubborn pride or willful, stubborn pride or just a determination to, you know, show that I'm still a friend of yours or whatever. But the uh, main reason why people do these things is because they are not educated in the word. If you're educated in the word and you know that you're not supposed to do something, then you will probably at least try not to do it. Doesn't mean you're not going to fall or you're not going to, you know, have a, a bad weekend or whatever. But the fact is, you're going to try your best to not do those things. Okay. Um, I remember when I met the Lord. Oh, I don't know. I mean, really met him in my heart and was just sold out. And this was after I was married. I mean, I, I have said this before. I'm pretty sure I was saved at 14, but, you know, I just kind of just did my own thing until I was 36. But I remember I was uh, at home. And I got mad about something, or maybe I yelled about something. I don't know what Hedico said to me. And you call yourself a Christian? And I said, that's why I call myself a Christian. It's because I hate what I do. I said, now I know the difference. Just because I do it doesn't mean that I like what I do. It means that I'm trying to be the person that this word says. And anybody that says that they are doing everything this word says have deluded themselves. Yeah, liar. Thank you, liar. So, you know, that's why we are Christians is because we understand that what I'm doing was wrong and I should not do it. And I'm going to talk to the Lord about it now. But, you know, at the time she hadn't called on the Lord. And then it wasn't long after that, that we walked into uh, uh, the uh, school slash church where our kids went. And Pastor Ross, thankfully, very simply told her the gospel and things changed for her for eternity that day. Anyway, let's see here. Um, In the end, our rewards and losses will be based on how we apply the precepts of the Word of God to our lives. What a sad meeting with the Lord it will be for many 
who have chosen to ignore these warnings and to continue to fellowship with the works, uh, the unfruitful works of darkness. You know, and the, the only way you're not going to do that, keep reading, keep reading the word, keep applying it to your lives. And, you know, I, I just, I told you, was it Sunday? Was it Sunday? I think I said, because it was Saturday, I listened to uh, Romans when I was going to the projects and got home. And actually, I had a little more to go after that. So um, uh, I listened to Romans. And every single time I listen to Romans, I'm reminded of something I had forgotten. I, I can't think of one time that I've ever listened to Romans. I probably heard it on the old study Bible that I used to listen to, the NIV that my friend Tom sent me, and then uh, I changed to the Word of Promise, and I've, I bet you have listened to it 20 times, plus I read it, you know, two, three, four times a year, but every single time I listen to it, I think, oh, I, I should be doing that. How easy it is to forget the Word of God. It's so big, it's so complicated, and so unless you're just doing it, you're not doing it, okay? Oh, I just love the fact that I'm reminded Every you know, I hate to say this, but I'm going to say it. When I'm in my car and somebody gets into the car and I've got the Bible going, and they turn it down, it drives me crazy. I know they want to talk, but I'd rather just have them sit there and be quiet and me listen to the word. Okay. You don't have uh, the ejection button. Yeah, yeah. Push the ejection button and out you go. I I just I have people that'll do that, and I know they want to talk. They're visiting or something, and off goes the Bible. I would much rather listen to the Bible and have them listening to the Bible too. We just sit and listen to it while we're driving, but whatever. It is what it is, and I accommodate, but boy, I, I hate to turn that thing off. Okay, um, let's see here. Life application. In order to bring others to a state of conviction concerning their own sin, we cannot fellowship with them while they are engaged in those sins. In so doing, we are then condoning their wickedness. And we're keeping them from understanding their need for Christ. We have been given a gift in our salvation. Let us be grateful for it and show that appreciation by walking in accord with that which is pleasing to the Lord. May it be so. Okay, verse 12. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. Uh, for it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. Very close. Okay, this verse is given to highlight the utterly shameful conduct of the works of darkness. Of the previous verse, they are often so perverse and so shameful that they should not even be spoken of. Hang on a second here. I got to get some air out of my... Get stuck right there. Okay, they are often so perverse and so shameful that they should not even be spoken of. This is a difficult thing in the world today where sexual perversion, satanic rituals, and obscene displays of so-called art are made open in public. What was done, once done by them in secret, which is what Paul is saying here, is now made open in public. What was, oh, I said that, is now highlighted by our elected leaders it's proclaimed as acceptable by our judges and placed as at the choicest hours of viewing by the media. Even more, the internet has these things popping up before our eyes by the mere click of a wrong button. And even worse is they're being taught in our schools to children that don't know any difference between what is good and what is wrong. And it, every week on the Prophecy Update, it gets more and more and more so every single week. The completely vile nature of the offenses 
are to be left undescribed by our lips. If this is so, then how much more are we to refrain from them? This is Paul's intent here. He is indicating that our walk is to be one of light. The works of darkness are often so despicable that we are not only to refrain from participating in them, but just mentioning them is inappropriate. How many times have I had a something on the Prophecy Update, and I'll read around it, and I'll say, I can't read this to you. I have to just tell you the substance of it, because I don't want to even repeat the words that are in the title, which is in a publication which anybody can read in the whole world. It's just the most vile things that are going on in this world, and they make headlines. Like, oh, let's just read this to the kids for, you know, before breakfast. Okay, um, uh, yeah, well, life application. That wasn't a very long commentary, but it gets the point across. While the world devolves into its perversion party, we are to keep our eyes directed towards the Lord, our hearts in meditation upon him, and our lips fully praising his glory. Let us not have ourselves to be caught up in the debauchery which surrounds us, but rather let us have our minds renewed and reinvigorated by God's word at all times. It's the word. I, I just can't get away from the fact that we need to be in this word. We need to think on it. We need to study it. We need to teach it all the time. 513. Romans 132. Romans 132. Yeah, oh, that's right. I, that's, I stopped that a week or two ago. We read Romans and I stopped there. But you're right. This is the result of what's happening. Romans 2, Romans 1, and then we'll start at 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. Think of the people, think of the teachers in the, the country right now. To do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing that the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. I mean, that could be any teacher in almost any school in America at this time. And they're approving of these things. They're teaching the most vile things to little children right out of Department of Education books. Unbelievable. As to Aztec God. Yeah. yeah. And they've got a suit against them for this. If you even mention the name of Jesus in a California school, I guarantee you'll get expelled. I guarantee you will. And yet they have people actively praying to an Aztec God which is no God at all, by the way. If you're listening, it's not a God at all, okay? YouTube or whoever, you want to censor me for that? There's one God, just one. He's revealed himself to the world through this book. There is no other. If that offends you, shut us off. What reference was that, Romans 1? Romans 1, 32, but I read from, I read from verse, uh, I, I've turned the page, 28. Okay, thank you. 18 through 32. Yeah, 18 through 32 gives you the whole progression of people, how they, they go from being normal human beings to being absolutely worthless. That's in the eyes of God. That's it. 5.13. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, unless they say you're judgmental. Yeah. 
That's it. That's that, what stops. 13. Okay, that is way shorter. This one says, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Wow. Yeah, there so you go. That's... Big difference there. Yeah. Okay, and but this that's, one... that's my next verse, 13. Okay, well then, they divided it. Uh, this one divides at the word, therefore, he says. So they've, they've divided it a little differently in there. Probably because when they do a translation and they have to get the words in there, sometimes words, a clause will fit on one side or another, and they'll say, well, we've got to slide this in here, mm -hmm. just because of the way the translation is rendered. As long as it has it in there, does, then you're good. Does, does your next one include the, uh, the quotation? Oh, yes, absolutely. Therefore, right, well then, yeah, yeah. So, okay. it's all there. It's just they had the number a little differently because of the thought. Yeah. So 513, the words of this verse are exactingly precise and are also very nuanced. Thus, scholars argue over the accurate intent of them. They are based on the surrounding verses, including the verse to come. And so the meaning can be more readily discerned when taken as a whole. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you from verse 8 through 14, and then we're going to take them as a whole. Four, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. Verse 13, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Okay, here we go. Paul is showing the contrast between light and darkness. We were once darkness, now we are light in the Lord. How did this come about? It was because the light of the Lord first shone on us. Because of that, our deeds were exposed. They were made manifest by the light. If we think of the parable of the tares from Matthew 13, we can get an idea of what is being said. The two plants, wheat and tares, grow up together and are almost indistinguishable. However, when the light shines on them, the tares are made manifest by the light. Now think of the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' time. They walked among the people and were thought to be good and pious men. However, the light of Jesus' words about them brought their deeds to light. They were exposed for what they truly were. In context, Paul is saying that the same thing Paul is saying the same thing to the believers in Ephesus about the deeds of the pagan world around them and from which they had been called. The light of the gospel shone on them, disclosing the true nature of who they were in relation to the Holy God. We'll stop right there and I'll say that. If you go into, uh, you're a missionary, then you go into a pagan place. Ray and Jess, they're over in Papua New Guinea. They're waiting for an assignment. They've had another setback. And boy, I know he just wants to get out there and start. But he's there, he's doing stuff, and people keep having problems. And he keeps, because he's a good guy and a, he's a resourceful guy, he's the one that gets called to do things. And so anyway, um, they're going eventually to go into their own area and they're going to, evangelize the people, and they're going to write a Bible translation of that local dialect, okay? That's, that's what's going to happen someday unless the Lord comes first. They're going to go into this area, and these people may have never heard anything about Jesus or what is proper living before, ever. And so he's going to go in there, and they are going to hear the Word of God, and if they don't 
kill them and hang their heads on a post, which probably won't happen in today's world, but you never know. Um, they are going to expose the deeds of darkness among those people. And those people are then going to realize what we're doing is wrong. God doesn't want us to do these things. And this has been repeated how many tens and hundreds of thousands of times throughout history as people have gone out and devoted their lives to telling people in parts of the world about the deeds of darkness. It may not be the same deeds of darkness as you find in uh, New York City right now with Bill de Blasio, but there are deeds of darkness going on down in the Amazon area where people have never seen humanity outside of their own circle and they're doing things there. You know, you watch the movie End of the Spear, is that what it was called? And, you know, it's kind of made for Hollywood, but it's a good movie that gives you a sense of what these people went through. They went down there and they the, some of the missionaries were first killed. More people went down there and devoted their lives to telling these people. And they just butchered each other, tribe by tribe, till there was almost nobody left at times. Then they just thought, this is the way we do these things. It's like, you know, killing a, a panther out in the, de- in the uh, jungle and then eating the thing. And they would just kill each other and think no thought of it. And these missionaries had to go down and expose the deeds of darkness. That's what the Word of God is there for, and that is our responsibility, whether it's here in America or whether it's down in the Amazon River Valley or if it's over in Papua New Guinea. That is what the Word of God does. Is it exposes the words of darkness. And the part of that movie that I remember, I remember you know, lots of stuff about the time down there, but the thing I remember most is, I think it was at the end when they were showing the actual guy that was the highlight of the movie, little guy. You know, he's the South American Indian guy. And you think of the ferocity of these people. He's just a little guy. And they brought him to America. And here he is. He's never been on one of those moving escalators. Yeah. And he says, he went back and he told the people, the, the ground moves. You don't have to walk. The ground moves you. And they're like, no. And he's telling them all these things. The doors open for you. And, he, you know, it was such a memorable thing to think that this person once lived in a place where he was literally spearing people to death. And now he's out learning about a world that he had never even experienced, and he's doing it in the name of Jesus. Wow. Yeah, what, that is what the Word of God is for. It is to bring to light the deeds of darkness and to change the hearts of people that were really, really wicked because of the world in which they lived. And then Jesus comes in and changes them. This same system of light, truth, and revelation was to be used to discern the state of those who were not yet living in Christ. That guy down there wasn't living in Christ. They'd never even heard of him. They had no idea. They become so depraved that killing was just the normal thing to do. The vile nature of their lives is exposed by the light which is now filled, which now filled the believers in Ephesus, or the believers in Papua New Guinea, or the believers in, you know, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, or wherever they are. Their, their deeds need to be exposed and people need to tell the goodness of Jesus that he would do the things he did so that they can hopefully change and come on a right direction. This is reflected actually in Philippians chapter 2, which is verses, I said 14 and 15. We'll start at, yes, we're going to start at 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That does not mean that you have to work in order to be saved. It means you are saved. Now live your life working out the way that you should live as a saved believer. Okay, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Verse 14, 
Do all things without complaining and disputing. Boy, is that hard. That you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Verse 16, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Well, Paul, I can tell you, you haven't because his words have been recorded. And it's not just the Philippians that receive them. Every Christian on this planet that has read the New Testament and has applied those words to their life or his life or her life or whatever, every single one of them has benefited from Paul's words. He has not labored his or run his course in vain. All right. He's going to be so surprised that 2,000 years it took or maybe even more for his word to go out through the world. And when he wakes up in the presence of the Lord, he is going to say, wow, thank you, Lord. If you could use a guy like me, you know, a persecutor of the church, a person that that did everything he could to squash the name of Jesus Christ. Oh, God, you used me for that. How good you are. What a great God. Think of it. By shining the light, everything is made manifest. Paul's words, given under inspiration of the Spirit, show us that the light of the gospel message is the only way to make things which are indecent appear as they really are. If you don't have the gospel, people are just going to say, oh yeah, this is the normal way to do things, and let's try this next, okay? Once the truth of the gospel shines on the deeds of wickedness, they are exposed and can be compared to that which is right, holy, and proper. Life application, yeah, we got time. Jesus asked us to have our light so shine before men that they may see our good works. In this, they too can be brought to glorifying our Father in heaven. Without the light of Christ radiating through us and exposing where their error lies, they cannot discern the true nature of their deeds. There must be something to reveal the error and something to compare it to. We are to be that light and that standard for others to do these things. That is our job. That is our responsibility. And if we're not doing it, then we are not doing what the Lord wants us to do. We're being disobedient little children. That's what we're doing. It's hard to do sometimes. It's a big calling. Sometimes you get frustrated. Sometimes you get in arguments and etc. But it is our duty as Christians to do those things and to try to be a light to other people. Okay, 514. Well, and it's, oh. I, I jokingly said, at the end of this particular verse, that bless you, accused of being judgmental. Oh yeah, and and you know it's it's a it's a I always know that I've made my point when that comes back. It's like, oh, you're just being judgmental. It's <laughs> like, well, no, I'm not, because if I were the judge, then I would be able to not only convict you of what you do, but I'd also be able to punish. That's right. Let you go. I am not a judge. That is a great point. There, I'm giving you discernment. That is wrong. This is not wrong. It's like you know. That's and, right. And, and it, it's like. It, the whole judgmental thing is just like... Well, it. I had somebody a couple of days ago tell me that there are six billion people on this planet. Who are you to make the judgment? I said, yes, but there is one God. Right. He's okay. Already made the He's made the decision. I, it's not me. I did not tell you what he that's, said. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. There is one... I don't care if there are six billion people, if there are eight, 852,000 different religions. I don't care if in those religions there are adherents that that observe that religion in a billion different ways. And in Christianity, that is true because they don't use this. They don't hold to this. That's not my responsibility. That is not my problem. 
there is one God and my responsibility, if I am doing it right, and I pray I am every time that I do a Bible study or every time I write a sermon or type a commentary, I pray that I am doing it right. But if I'm not, it doesn't matter. The responsibility is that I am to present this word as I believe it is to be presented. And if it's not correct, the Lord will hopefully show me that. But my responsibility is to proclaim that there is one God, that this is his word, and this word reveals Jesus Christ. I don't care that there are six billion people on the planet. That's not my responsibility, okay? The, seven billion, whatever. Well, the person that said that to me said six billion. And I, I almost said seven billion too, but I wasn't going to get into an right. argument over it. But that... Yeah, yeah, don't be judgmental. The what? Yeah, what's a billion people? Exactly. In China, when I look at the, the number of people over there, they got a, a billion people. Yeah. And India is the same way. Yeah. yeah. A billion giant, giant countries as far as population. That's right. And it doesn't matter if there's a billion Chinese, and I know there's a lot of Christians in China. Okay, but forget that. We'll just say that they're all Buddhist. Does that change the word of God? Does that have any bearing on the word of God at all? If there are a billion people in India and they're all Hindus, every one of them, that has no bearing on the word of God at all. It doesn't change the fact that this is the word of God and they are still accountable to the God of this word, if this word is true. And I am fully convinced that this word is true. In every bit of my being, every fiber of my being, I believe that this word is the word of God. And yeah, and I'll tell you what, I'll tell you one other thing about that is that it's not just because somebody said, this is the word of God and I'm going to accept that because King James only people do that all the time, right? It's because one, it changed me and I know that this change is real. And secondly, after it changed me, because I'll tell you something, I've read testimonies of Mormons back in the time of Joseph Smith and they said, I was converted, and it was the most enlightening experience of my whole life. Okay, great. You had that experience. I've heard Jehovah's Witnesses and other, you know, uh, Masons and other groups of people say the same thing. Read commentaries by people that have joined into a certain group and said, this has changed my life. Now it's time to check. Yes, this has an effect on me. My life has been changed, but was it the right change? And that is, you're responsible for that in your life. There were people that were down in Guyana that thought that they had the right path. There were people in Waco, Texas that thought they had the right path, okay? It's time for you to check things out. It's not just that, yes, you've been converted. Yes, you've had this change. It's time to check things out. It's time to do your due diligence. Even if it's true, are you being taught properly in how it's true? If you're just listening to Charlie Garrett and only Charlie Garrett, how do you know that he is right? How do you, how do you have any clue? Okay, but I am convinced that this is the word of God and that it reveals the true God. It is my hope that I will never deviate from proper teaching of this. And I'm sorry in advance for every person if I've taught something incorrectly. And when you go to stand before the Lord, he says, you know what that guy over there said, one with the beard, he wasn't right on that. I, I, I would not intentionally ever do that. Okay, so um, did we read? You didn't, 514. For it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Okay, this one, a little different. Therefore, he says, awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. 
little different there. Shine on you, give you light. Okay, is it is it saying it actively or passively? Right. Okay, right. so you have to think that one through, and you have to go to the Greek or trust one translation or another. All right. Question though, they have a, a in quotation marks. It's like, who is this? Oh, that's citing the Old Testament. It's citing. Um, does it, it say here? Um, uh, yeah, I say it. That's as a matter of fact. I got it right in the commentary here. Okay. okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it's not a direct quotation we're going to see, but okay. This verse is another which is troubling to scholars. Get my eye. I'm sorry. I've got stuff in my eye. I might as well get that eye while I'm doing it. Okay. Um, it's troubling to scholars. Paul begins with, therefore he says. <clears throat> the word therefore is setting a contrast to verses 11 through 13 and is being directly aligned with verses 8 through 10. We are to have no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness, while at the same time we are to walk as children of light. Those are both Paul's thoughts. In order to do these things, he then gives the next words. He says, this implies a citation of scripture, as it is always used in this manner. However, no such citation exists. The closest we can get is a combination of two verses. From, we're going to go first to Isaiah 26, okay, and it's fine if Paul takes two verses, he's making a point, and we do it all the time, all right, but we're going to go to Isaiah 26, and we're going to go to verse 19, and it says, your dead shall live together with my dead body. They shall arise, awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. And then we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 60. And we're going to read the first verse. Hang on. Right. That's exactly right. Isaiah 60. And it says, verse 1. Where are we? Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. So it's a, a merging of the two. And by the way, does anybody know who used that in one of their symphonies? Arise, shine. Come on, Handel's Messiah. You've got to be kidding me. Okay. All right, here we go. My mom listens to it like every year 15 times, and here she can't remember. Uh, you're in big trouble for that one, buddy. Go home and listen to that tonight. Okay, um, let's see here. Some scholars see uh, one or another being loosely cited. Isaiah 26, 19, Isaiah 61. Others see both being combined and loosely cited, and still others find either of those options nonsense. There's actually nothing unprecedented about two citations being combined into one. This happens elsewhere in the New Testament. There is also nothing unusual about a rather loose citation. This also happens elsewhere in the New Testament. However, what is more probable is that he is referencing the account in Jonah. How do I know? Because we did a study on Jonah, where the captain of the ship comes to wake Jonah from a deadened sleep. There in Jonah 1.6, it says, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps the, the God will shine on us so that we may not perish. So it's actually probably from Jonah because he's just citing what the captain said to him. Okay. Jonah what? Uh, Jonah 1.6. In that verse, the captain uses the word ashat. It is a verb which means to shine. The word ashat comes from a primitive root, which means to be sleek and thus glossy, and hence through the idea of polishing to shine. And so the translation should actually read, arise, call on the God, perhaps Paul, call on the God. 
perhaps Paul was thinking of this account when he penned these words. By shining the light, everything is made manifest by the light. Despite being in a real storm in the sea of chaos, and despite being under physical harm, there was a spiritual connotation that was being drawn out, even by that pagan captain. And we know that's okay because elsewhere Paul uh, cites Epimenides and uh, a couple other Greek philosophers, and he says blah, blah, blah about them. Okay, so just because something is said by a pagan does not mean that it is not correct. And that's why he's in the Bible anyway saying that. There was a dis... What's that? Acts 17. Acts 17. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Acts 17, he cites that, and also in Titus, where he says um, all Cretans are liars. liars. Uh, what What is that called? It's called the, the Epimenides Paradox. That's exactly right, because Epimenides was a... Cretan. And if he says all Cretans are liars, then that means he's a liar and therefore what he's saying isn't true. Right. Everybody see that? So Paul is using a paradox to teach us a lesson about the word of God. Okay, there you go. So it's called the Epimenides Paradox. Anyway, we'll get back to this. Um, there was a spiritual connotation that was being drawn out even by that pagan captain. There was disharmony between them and God, which needed to be rectified. Though they didn't know of the gospel, they knew that there was a need for the gospel. The light of the gospel message is the only way to make things which are indecent appear as they really are. Go back and read our last commentary again. Once the truth of the gospel shines on the deeds of wickedness, they are exposed, and they can be compared to that which is right, holy, and proper. You need to have a contrast and a comparison in life to make any proper decisions. It's just the way of the world. I say that about Adam and Eve. They had nothing to compare Eden to, did they? They just thought, oh, we're in this great place. Isn't it nice? And until they left that great place, they had no idea how great it was. Okay. Contrast and comparison are some of the most important things that we could possibly ever experience. I'm not trying to diminish people's sickness. Okay. I hate sickness. I hate it more than anybody. I'm the biggest sissy on this planet. But if you never get sick, you're never going to be able to really appreciate what it's going to be like in glory compared to the people that were really, really sick, okay? Contrast and comparison are something that we are going to appreciate for all of eternity. And hopefully, you know, now we forget bad things and we remember good things. You, you can smell something that you haven't smelled since you were five years old, and when you smell it, that memory will come back. But the bad memories go away. When we go to glory, I don't ever want my bad memories to go away, ever, because I want the contrast of the glory of what Christ has done for us, okay? So, once the truth of the gospel shines on the deeds of wickedness, they are exposed and can be compared to that which is right, holy, and proper. The main key to understanding this is Paul's use of the word Christ. If he is citing the Old Testament, then the word Christ is an obvious interpretation of that citation. He is taking a known set of words and applying a prophetic meaning to them in the work of Christ. And so we are assured that it is Isaiah that is being quoted. But more than that, it is a quote which then asserts the incarnation, the glory of the Lord, meaning Jehovah of the Old Testament, is being directly equated with Christ in the New. The glory of the Lord Jehovah Paul says, is the light of Christ. They are one. Christ is God. What was concealed in the old is now revealed in the new. 
Understanding this, the citation is saying that walking as children of light, which occurs by arousing from the sleep and having no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, which occurs when we arise from the dead, is what will cause Christ to give us light. We are to actively pursue Christ and actively shun the dark, darkness of the things of this world. As we do, we will be given the light of Christ. Life application and we are done for the day. There is no stagnation in our walk towards our eternal home. We are either moving towards godliness or we are moving away from it. Each moment is a new moment in which we are to continue to press forward with our eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2, my favorite verse in the Bible. In him is light, and in order to know him, we must pursue him through his word. Reader, you are admonished to get your nose into the word and pursue it daily, and then think on what you have read as you go about your daily walk. Johnny Erickson thought. Yes, I almost brought her up. We're she close. Said, when I get to heaven and park my wheelchair outside the gate. Absolutely. It's not going to be that I'm so relieved and jump up and down. She said, I'll make a beeline to Jesus. Jesus. Thank him for saving me. Absolutely. You know, it was nothing about all her suffering. That's right. It's not about her suffering at all. What a great person. I don't know her theology. All I know is that she's done a lot to exalt Christ with that broken body of hers. I almost brought her up, and I wasn't sure if we'd have time, but we did have time when I finished. So good stuff. You know, good stuff from Johnny Erickson Tata. Heavenly Father, let's pray for her tonight. Heavenly Father, we lift that woman up. We know that she's got terrible pains in her body. She's got all kinds of difficulties, and her husband has a big burden to to carry every single day, getting her ready for life. And so, Lord, just be a comfort to both of them as they conduct their lives in your presence and give them the strength and the courage to continue on and to be lights and examples to the world. And I would pray, not knowing that their doctrine is sound and good and that they live responsible lives in accordance with your word. I'm pretty sure that's probably true, but Lord, help them to correct any deficiencies in that area. But above all, give them the comfort in their their lives together to exalt you and to glorify you with them. And Lord, we thank you for this class. We thank you for the prospect of a weekend ahead and then Sunday church. What a good time that always is. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for it. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. I right. see Tom tonight. Tom, you know, he might not be back. Or Oh, no, he was getting back, I think, this afternoon. So, yes, I think that's, I think that's what Claudia said. I may be wrong, but I think it was this this afternoon. I'm going to put in a break, and then we got to.